Hello and welcome to the MIT Press Podcast. My name is Sam Kelly and what you're listening to right now is a sound piece designed by artist and author of High Static Deadlines, Kristen Galeno. In a moment, I'm going to be speaking to Wade Rausch, author of Extraterrestrials and Twelve Tomorrows. Wade Rausch is a journalist who lives in Cambridge, Massachusetts. He writes about science and technology and how we can use them to make the future better for everyone. In addition to the two books he's published throughout the MIT Press, he writes a monthly column about innovation for Scientific American, produces a twice-monthly podcast for MIT Technology Review magazine called Deep Tech, and makes his own narrative podcast about the future called Soonish. Today, I'll be talking to Wade about Extraterrestrials, his new book that's out as part of the MIT Press Central Knowledge series, and that will be published and available from the 7th of April. Hey, Sam, it's really great to talk with you. I thought we could start off by asking you the obvious question. Do you think it's more likely than not that there is intelligent life elsewhere in the universe? I think the best answer to that question is, I don't know. That's the only scientific answer to the question. I have my own sort of personal hopes and preferences. And if you really pressed me against the wall and made me answer the question, I guess I would say it does seem more likely than not that there must be other advanced civilizations out there that we could potentially communicate with or maybe hear from someday. But we've been looking for a long time and we haven't heard a peep. So I'm beginning to think that either um, there aren't as many extraterrestrials as we thought there might be, or we're just not looking the right way. Okay. And historically, how have people approached this question? Because obviously it's a very difficult one to answer without direct evidence and an interaction with an extraterrestrial. What are some of the methods people have employed to approach the question? Well, I would say that for most of history, up to about 1959, to be exact, we gradually built up a storehouse of tools that would allow us to ask this question in a more scientific way. But basically, it was all speculation. And I would say it wasn't really until the 1880s or 1890s when we started building telescopes uh, that allowed us to look at the surfaces of other planets, specifically the moon and Mars, that we started to be able to test the question. And some of the very first people who did that, like Giovanni Schiaparelli in Italy and Percival Lowell here in the US, built telescopes to look at Mars and were under the misimpression for a long time that there probably were structures like canals on the surface of Mars and that that implied that Mars was inhabited. So we did go through a period in the 19th century, when people were very openly talking about the idea that we might have neighbors right here in our own solar system. That idea was eventually disproved. And then it was another 50 or 60 years before we had the technology to ask the question in a different way. And the key to the opening up of this whole field of what's called SETI, or the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, was basically the development of radio astronomy during and right after World War II. So within 15 years after the end of the war, you had people looking at radio technology and realizing that we could build telescopes to listen to radio signals from space, and that if anybody was broadcasting, we could probably pick up some signals if we were listening on the right frequencies. And, and so the question immediately became, well, what frequencies should we be listening at? And what kind of message might people send to us? So 
that formal sort of period of the search for extraterrestrial intelligence started around 1959 with the publication of a paper uh, by uh, Phil Morrison and Giuseppe uh, Cocconi in Nature and um, was quickly followed up by a really important conference at the Green Bank Observatory in West Virginia here in the U.S. in 1962 and kind of kicked off the, the more formal era of, of SETI. And that's what most of my book is about, is really that transition from the period of speculation and philosophy and, and science fiction treatments of this question of SETI into a much more scientific, grounded, and evidence-driven search for aliens. And that's the style that we've been using to approach this question ever since. And we've been developing new and better ways to search. Haven't found anything yet, obviously, because if we had, that would be world-breaking news. But we're at least in the stage now of where we can, we can gather evidence and, and test hypotheses, and we aren't just speculating anymore. I also wanted to ask you to talk a little bit about how you found your way into the field, because what is quite interesting, and you kind of put, touched on it there a little bit, is the role of sci-fi and culture as kind of influencing a lot of people who are interested in this question and it starting off as not simply a scientific inquiry but being a philosophical and cultural one. And I was wondering if that had an impact on how you how this became an important question to you. Well, I'm a child of the uh, 60s, 70s and 80s. I was a teenager in the 80s. And by that point, I would say the idea of extraterrestrials was already very thoroughly mixed into the culture. So there were plenty of TV shows and movies about aliens or with alien characters. I mean, everything from Star Trek to Star Wars to Close Encounters of the Third Kind to E.T. So that idea was definitely sort of, it just seemed natural to a kid growing up at that stage that we probably weren't alone and that we would sooner or later be contacted by extraterrestrials. The key change for me was when I started to realize that this wasn't just science fiction and it wasn't just speculation, that there were actual scientists asking this question. And for me, that all happened around 1980 when Carl Sagan's original book and TV series Cosmos came out. So for me, that was kind of a world shifting moment. Uh, you know, a lot of people <laughs> have the, the one book or the one movie that changed their life. And I think that for me, it was, it was the original Cosmos. There have been a couple of um, amazing sort of follow-up sequels to Cosmos with Neil deGrasse Tyson, but I'm talking about the original one with Carl Sagan. And Sagan had been a key figure in the whole evolution of the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. It was one of his key sort of scientific and personal interests. He was one of the people at this meeting I mentioned in Green Bank, where the science of SETI was more or less born. And... There's a whole episode of that series, Cosmos, that went into this question of how many aliens might there be out there? How do we even ask that question of how to, how to listen for them? And that was when I realized that there were actual scientists using actual technology to search for aliens. And from then on, I was kind of hooked on this, this whole field. It's a story I do tell in the book, but sort of another life-changing moment for me was that a few years later when I was at college, and this was the mid-80s now, I actually got to meet Carl Sagan in person at an event to inaugurate a, a new telescope and a new computer that were being used to greatly amplify or greatly improve, the greatly accelerate the search for extraterrestrial signals. He was there to help celebrate the opening of this, sort of the christening of this telescope, so to speak. And there was a big symposium with Steven Spielberg, who had helped to fund it, and Sagan and Paul Horowitz, the 
physicist at Harvard who had built the thing, had built the computer. And I got to meet all these guys and I wrote my very first news story for the college newspaper. And so in a, in a strange way, that seminar, that symposium, the opportunity to meet Sagan and write my first science journalism story was another life-changing moment. I didn't come back to the topic. I never wrote another piece about aliens or extraterrestrials or SETI until I got the invitation from MIT Press many, many years later to write this book. And it's been a wonderful opportunity to come back, catch up on everything that's changed since the mid-80s, re-educate myself about the urgency and details of this question, and, and, um, and you know, figure out what I, what I felt now about, you know, the central fact is we haven't heard anything. We haven't, SETI has not succeeded. And so with every year that passes, I think you have to be, you have to ask the question even more urgently or acutely, why have we not heard from aliens? And it's a question with many ramifications and many interesting answers that you can explore. And that's what I try to do in the book. Yeah. So I, I was going to ask what's in that re-education, has, have there been any major shifts or changes in the field? But I suppose you answered it by saying that there hasn't necessarily been any discoveries Maybe instead, then, what I'll ask is, which do you think has more sort of serious ramifications for human life? Because in as much as discovering extraterrestrials would be a huge shift in how Earth perceives itself, there's a lot of people that say that it would be a much more fundamental shift to start thinking about Earth as the only form of life that is in the universe and what that might mean. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about which one of those frameworks you are more sympathetic with and also what the effects of thinking in those two different ways might have. Yeah. Well, Sam, I think actually both of those questions are great questions and I'd like to deal with each of them in turn if you don't mind. So it's true that we've continued the search for radio and optical signals from aliens ever since 1960, basically, and the technology we're using gets better and better and we keep coming up with a blank. So the science hasn't changed in that sense. I mean, there's no positive result. But as I did the research for this book and re-educated myself and kind of, uh, this is all stuff that I followed out of the corner of my eye as I was getting started as a science journalist and then um, continuing my career. But it's never anything I wrote about in depth. But when I sat down to write the book, I, you know, I finally had an opportunity to catch up on everything that has developed around these two key fields of astrobiology and exoplanet research. And so in those areas, there's been an enormous amount of change and a lot of really encouraging discoveries. And there's a whole chapter in the book about these two subjects. And just to summarize, I would say that since the 70s on the astrobiology side, we have discovered that just extrapolating from what we've learned about life here on Earth, we've discovered that life can survive and thrive under much more extreme circumstances than we ever would have imagined before. So even here on Earth, we can find life living in super high temperature environments, super high pressure environments, very salty or very cold environments. So as we, as we study these, these organisms that we call extremophiles, uh, because they live, live in these extreme environments, uh, it becomes more and more plausible to think that there are lots of places elsewhere in the galaxy or in the universe where, where life could start and life could survive. So we're building sort of a, a case from the ground up through the biology and life sciences that life is probably common. Whether that means that intelligence is common is a completely different question. But astrobiology is just exploding. And then on the exoplanet research side, since the 90s, we have managed to figure out ways to 
look at other stars and measure their movements and extrapolate whether there might be planets or systems of planets around other stars. And, you know, as late as the mid to late 90s, we didn't know of any planets around any other stars. And then we developed a couple of methods for looking much more closely. And since then, there's just been a, um, a huge flood of planet discovery. So now, now there are something like 4,000 and growing. Uh, the count of other planets around other systems, which we call exoplanets, is above 4,000. Uh, it keeps growing every day. We've launched satellites specifically designed to search for these planets, and there are tons of them. And it turns out that a lot of them are actually in what we call the habitable zone around their stars, which, which is sort of the the zone where um, you're close enough to your star that the water on your planet isn't freezing or frozen, uh, but you're not so close that the water boils off. So because we, we think that water is probably a prerequisite for life, although not necessarily, it really helps if you've got liquid water on your planet. And it turns out that a fair number of the exoplanets we're discovering are in the habitable zones around their stars, which also is very encouraging if you're looking at this big picture of how common life might be and it feeds into an argument that, you know, the more habitable planets there are that we can spot, the higher the chances that there might be a place for that life to evolve all the way into a high-tech civilization that we would have a chance of communicating with. So that's that. Your other question is really fascinating. I mean, so basically, if I could restate your question, you're saying, obviously, it would change our culture and it would, it would be a fundamental sort of uh, novelty to us to find out that we weren't alone that we have real company, that we have another, we have other beings to, to talk with and exchange knowledge with. Um, it would be a continuation of the Copernican and Darwinian revolution. You know, it would be uh, knocking us yet one more degree off from our anthropocentrism. But the opposite conclusion is also an interesting one to think about because the, the longer we go without making contact, the more it seems like it's possible, at least, that we're alone. That might mean we're the first advanced civilization in the galaxy. It might mean we're the last. At any rate, it means we're the only one within communications range. And that itself is like a, a really interesting insight. And, and it might tend to make you feel uh, a little even more protective and, and uh, more conscious about the value and preciousness of life on this planet. And, you know, one would hope that if that settled in, if that idea settled in, that we, we probably aren't the only... You know, the basic idea is is not necessarily that we're the only form of life in the Milky Way or in the universe, because it's very likely that there are at least microbial types of life on other planets. But, you know, it is remotely possible that we're the only species that has evolved to the point of sentience and communication and technology. And I think that makes us, as Carl Sagan used to say, uh, we are the way the universe knows itself. And if it turns out if the evidence keeps mounting that we're the only way for the universe to know itself, that would put us in an even more precarious and special and important position. And one would hope that that would lead to greater efforts to make sure we survive and that, you know, that, uh, that this, that we aren't snuffed out because that would be a huge, that would be a huge tragedy. <laughs> yeah. I think that might be a great way to finish if you agree. Yeah. You no, know, it's been really fun to talk and, uh, I hope, People enjoy the book, and it's intended to be very accessible and very brisk. It's the kind of book you can read, like all of the books in the Essential Knowledge series. You can read it in a, a fun afternoon. So um, I really uh, look forward to getting people's feedback. Yeah, I really enjoyed the book and uh, have really enjoyed speaking to you today. So thank you very much. You're welcome, Sam. This is really fun for me, too. Great. 
Okay, speak soon. Thanks, Sam. Take care. Thanks again.